Good morning again. I'm glad that you are joining us on this sermon series I'm calling The Quest. It is a series that is walking us through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And if you haven't been part of the series, or I can catch you up, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is a little bit different than other Bible books. We are used to going to the books of the Bible and really getting answers, right? I mean, this is uh, how God demonstrates his love towards us. Okay, this is how sinful humans can meet with a holy God. This are, these are his you know, standards and the commandments. And the, Okay, this is the history of Israel. It makes sense. The book of Ecclesiastes, however, is different. It's not so much a book of answers as a book of questions. It, uh, Tim Keller says that you could theologically understand what's going on if you could imagine taking the book of Ecclesiastes out of your binding in your Bible, lifting it up, and putting it at the very front of the Bible. So the, the, the Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew word is Kohelet, Greek is Ecclesiastes. It means the professor, or the convener, or the preacher, or the quester. We don't know exactly how to translate it, but this professor, who we think is King Solomon, is raising life's most difficult questions. Is there any meaning? What's the point of it all? Does it, where did we come from? What happens to us after we die? Is there any justice? And when you ask all those questions and you really raise those questions, then you begin with the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on from there all the way to Revelation. And the Bible is the answer to the questions that are raised in Ecclesiastes. But along the way, you get some really great wisdom. Solomon, you know, we get wisdom. And so last week, hopefully very practical. Uh, do you remember the Bible verse? I only preached on one verse last week. If you weren't here, you're off the hook. But if you are here, I hope you remember this one verse. Do you remember it? We're going to say it from memory. If not, do you remember the type of candy? Skittles. Okay, now do you remember the Bible? Exactly. No, 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 no pressure. In fact, uh, to whoever... Um, Somebody uh, left me in the first service sitting on the pew in the first service was this big bag of Skittles, which is great, concession stands for the preacher. Um, but it struck me that like, oh, if that's how it works, like if a preacher, if I use a particular sermon illustration and the next week it's waiting for me in the pew, like why didn't I use an illustration of like the keys to a brand new pickup truck, you know? <laughs> I think I left a little on the table. Uh, <laughs> Do you remember the verse? Got it. Now, Skittles, that jog your memory? Did I stall? Did I give you enough time to look it up? Okay, here we go. Say it with me. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Very good, very good, very good. You guys got it. Well, if you're going to raise the, the, the hard questions, if you're going to be a professor that's going to get people to question their philosophy of life, in today's text, you, you know you're eventually going to have to raise this question. You know you are eventually going to have to tackle this. What do you do with the problem of evil? What do you do with suffering? And here's the biggest one. What do you do with so much of what we see in life? And how many of your kids say this or your grandkids say this? It's just not fair. You ever hear that? It's just not fair. And I was always told, life's not fair, move on. I'm like, how is that helpful? Like, how does that put me in a better way to deal with my, right? Like it's, but it's not. What do you do with that? Even little children realize this is a big problem. What do you do with the injustice we see all around us? Well, 
Kohelet wants to dive right in. Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 today if you want to turn. And, and he gets to that question. I don't think while you're turning to Ecclesiastes 8, let me say, I don't think we as humans have so much a problem with suffering as what we really have a problem with is unjust suffering or unexplained suffering or suffering that doesn't seem fair. For example, if I hit my hand with a hammer, I may be mad but I don't like blame God. God, why did you let this happen? You know, I, I just, I, I blame myself. I should have been more uh, thoughtful, less careless. If I leave the stove on at my house and the house burns down, I don't think, why God? I think, oh, why Tom? Why did you do that, right? Where it come, where the problem is what? The problem is how do you explain stuff that's not your fault? How do you explain tornadoes? Leaving all this wreckage. How, how do you explain cancers? How do you explain an automobile accident that strikes down a teenager in the prime of life and suddenly they're dead. What do you do with that? That's where those questions get tough. Why, God? Especially, and, and you know, that's really what the book of Job is about. Like, jo the whole point of Job, if you haven't read it, this guy goes through incredible suffering, and his point is, if I had been a wicked, evil person who was always against you, I could understand, God, you sending all this suffering. But the point is, Job was what? Job was a righteous man. And his friends are like, dude, you must have done something. He's like, I'm telling you, I didn't. That's the whole problem. I'm, I mean, he, he was a righteous man. And little by little, I think we know this as Christians, we know this in our head, but at a heart level, most of us operate with a Christian version of karma. We, don't, we would never admit that, but that's mostly how we operate. If I live a good life, if I do the right thing, if I obey, then God, I need to walk under your blessing. That's how it should work, right? You, you, good you do good, good will come back to you. You do evil, I could understand evil. But if I'm living right, a lot of us, it sneaks in here, we sort of think our good deeds will put God in our debt. So it goes something like this. Now, God, I've, now listen, I've been trying to walk a faithful path here. I've been trying to be obedient. I get these kids in church, and I pray, and I tithe, and if I do all these things, then you have to bless me. Why? Because I'm not out here living crazy. I'm not living an unrighteous life. I'm living for you, God. And didn't you say that if I would live for you, you would prosper me? You would give me the desires of my heart? Why am I going through all suffering? And if, 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 if this keeps up, I'm eventually going to wonder, why am I even trying? Why bother being a good person? You hear that? If you've ever thought that at a heart level, it betrays what you really think. What you really think are your good deeds have put God in your debt. So that you can say, God, I, I, I walked honorably and I tithe and I pray and I go on mission trips and I do all these things and now you have to bless me. And if you don't, I can sue you for breach of contract. Because that's the understanding that we have here. You hear that? And the problem with that way of thinking is reality. It's not how it works. And the professor wants to push on that. So look where he goes next on his quest. Think about it. He's gone down the route of like, you know, the party life. And he's, he's gone down the, the, the route of achievements and trying to build something. Look at where he goes next on his quest to get wisdom. And I think it's a great place. Look where he goes, verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. He goes to a funeral. Now let me say this. There are worse places to get wisdom than a funeral. If you're at a, next time you go to a funeral, if it's somebody you're super close to, you won't be able to do this because you'll just be processing your grief. You'll be grieving. Grief is a gift God gives us to help us walk through that process, so you need to grieve. But if you ever go to a funeral and you didn't really know, you're maybe distantly related to a family member or something um, uh, that, that knows this person, you know, 
If you'll just, if everybody in the world would just, next time you're at a funeral, if you would just stop and think about what's really happening for three minutes, the world would be a different place. If you stopped and truly considered like, oh, like there is an end to this, there, there, there is finality, this is real. If you would just stop and ponder, and that's what he does. He looks at the wicked, and notice he doesn't just go to any funeral, he goes to the funeral of a wicked person. This, this is a, the, the evildoer. This, is the, this isn't just somebody who, you know, they littered occasionally and had some unpaid parking tickets. No, this is the, this is the human trafficker, right? This is the, uh, uh, the, the, the abuser and abductor of children. And what does he see at that funeral? When they lower that casket, does he see the flames of hell lick the, the casket as it's going in? Finally, there's justice at the wicked person's funeral. Finally, there's justice. Is that what he sees? No, look, when I saw the wicked buried, they used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. Everybody said nice things about him at their funeral. He's going, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, they talked about his church attendance. See, he used to go in and out of the holy place. Every Sunday, would come in and worship a holy God with no intent to serve God, in complete rebellion to God. But every Sunday he was here, in and out and praised in the city where they'd done such things is especially condemning. In other words, he didn't run off and out on the West Coast, y'all, he had a secret family. He was doing all this crazy stuff and uh, right there in the city, the very people he was oppressing should have finally stood up at the funeral and said, you know, good that this person's no longer, there's been some justice. Instead, they praised him. In the very city, he's praised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, there's no real sense of justice. You can live wicked. You can live evil. You go back in the box. You go on the ground. Everybody paints you up and says nice things. There's there's injustice to this. And and that's what the professor is trying to get you to see. Uh, There's no, um, and this is is an old word. It's an old-fashioned word. I don't know if you use this word anymore. A hundred years ago, they would have used this word. They would have said, is the wicked man ever going to get his, I I mean, it's like so old-fashioned. I feel like funny even. But like, will he ever get his comeuppance? <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't have. I know. That's what I thought. When he, uh, is, he, is he ever going to get his comeuppance? To those of you that are like, I use that word like daily. All right, cool. Is that ever going to happen? Is there any? Uh, uh, 50 years ago, they would have said, you know, will he ever get what's coming to him? In modern day, we would say this way. That ain't right. <laughs> but it's the same concept, Right? Is there no comeuppance? Here's how they said it 3,000 years ago. Here's how Solomon said, is there no comeuppance? He said, this also is vanity. That's Solomon's way of saying, that ain't right. That's messed up. Skip ahead to verse 14 where he puts it more plainly. Now, it's a little, the language is a little stilted. The, the, The phrasing is a little wooden, but you'll immediately see the point. Here's a vanity. Here's something that ain't right that I've noticed. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that y'all, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and you guessed it, there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. Do you understand what he's saying? Have you ever seen this? There are people who are living a righteous life that get the, the consequences for their life, get dumped on them what the wicked deserve. And the wicked people get dumped on them what the righteous people should get. That's not right. Are they ever going to get their comeuppance? Who has not seen this on a global scale or a local scale? Have you not seen this? Globally, a cruel, tyrannical dictator 
takes over a, 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 a nation state and, you know, abuses everybody. And what happens? Just stays in power. Other governments are powerless. Well, what can you do? That's not right. So the righteous people are getting treated like the wicked, and the wicked people, they're getting treated by what, by what the righteous deserve. A, 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 a corrupt CEO of a corporation embezzles funds, and oh, he gets a slap on the wrist, a little federal prison stint, and you know, millions of dollars of fine, but he's fine. He goes off to his other millions and millions. But the guy working third shift at the factory way down the line, he and all his buddies, they get laid off because of this guy's foolishness. That ain't right, Solomon's saying. It's, it's unjust. Is, is, is that how it works? The righteous get the deeds of the wicked, the wicked get the deeds of the righteous. Yes. I think about these missionaries and these pastors in these countries that are closed to the gospel. Now here you've got people that are going to bless other people, people they don't even know, and yet they're willing to leave their family, they're willing to leave their home, and they're willing to leave everything behind and go to eternally bless, to love and to care and to build up, and they get thrown in prison for trying to love and care and build up. And meanwhile, the people that do it, they just seem to profit and go right along. So, so, so this righteous person gets treated like the wicked, and the wicked, they get treated like the righteous. But you don't have to be on a global level. This happens at a personal level, doesn't it? That, that, that lady at work that took credit for your idea, that was bad enough. But then with that very idea, she gets the promotion, and you stay stuck at the same pay grade. Ain't right. How many of you have a break room at work where you want to print off this verse and put it on the refrigerator for that person that is stealing your sandwich? I didn't believe that happened. I absolutely did not believe it. I, I, like, I, I asked Jackie, one, Jackie was a, a school teacher for many years in New York. I'm like, that, that doesn't happen. I've always heard like office humor, like people will steal food out that's not there. I'm like, there's no way that happens. I cannot imagine a planet where you would open a refrigerator door and be like, Honestly, I can't remember if I made this sandwich or not. I probably did. And like, how insane. Like what? And every single person who works in an office environment without exception has told me it absolutely happens. And I'm like, how is that possible? What level of humanity do you have to be on to steal somebody's lunch out of the break room? Well, you know that person? Yeah, they get to have a delicious lunch and you're sandwichless. The deeds of the wicked... The deeds of the righteous. It's not fair. Students, students, you, you know. You know you know. You're not a rat, but you know. You're not going to tattle, but you know. You know who's cheating. You know it. I mean, you've heard rumors maybe, but you know. And when they go home at the end of their semester with a report card, and that class they cheated in, they got an A, and you did it right. You had integrity and you refused to cheat and you have to go home with your parents. You got a C minus, but you got an honest. But unfortunately, there's not a single report card in America that says C minus, C footnote. You're down here. But I also have integrity. Like, yeah, good for you, right? That's not right. It's not right, is it? The deeds of the righteous got what the wicked deserve and the deeds of the wicked got what the righteous deserve. Let's, let's get really real. Single Christians. You're single and you desire to be married. I believe that uh, singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. God gives some the gift of singleness. God gives some the gift of marriage. We need to talk openly about that. You may have the gift of singleness and the church needs to treat that as a gift. You're not an incomplete person. 
as if marriage is the thing that completes you. No, Jesus Christ completes you. There were several single people that we celebrate in our church, like, um, Paul, or say, Jesus. Right? I mean, like, technically, he was engaged to the bride of Christ. Gotcha. Okay. But does everybody see what I'm saying? If you're single, you may not have the gift of marriage. Now, if you're sitting there going, oh, please, God, don't say I have the gift of singleness. Please let me have the gift. You probably have the gift of marriage. That's okay. That's one way you know. Here's my point. You're single, and you're doing it God's way. And God's way is very simple. By the way, the Bible's sexual ethic can be summed up in one sentence. Complete chastity and singleness, complete faithfulness in marriage. That's it. Total purity when you're single, complete faithfulness when you're married. That's it. So you're doing it God's way, and you're trying to live a life of purity right now. And uh, you are not only trying to live a life of purity, you are also, as a Christian young single, you are also not going to lower your standards. And you're not going to date somebody that's not a believer. So you're out here trying to date somebody that's a Christian. You're trying to do it God's way. You're trying to be pure. And it's like nothing. Crickets. (laughs) Meanwhile, your friends are like anything goes. And they're living this crazy life and it doesn't matter. And all the stands are out the window. They get the big engagement ring and a pretty white dress. And you're trying to do it God's way, nothing. That's not right. The deeds of the wicked get the righteous. These of the righteous get the wicked. You should get the big ring. You should get the biggest ring of all. <laughs> right? Over and over again, you see it. It's injustice. It's vain. What do you do with this? Well, the first thing you need to know is the Bible is shockingly honest about this reality. Uh, some people uh, who are critical and skeptical of the Bible would say it doesn't match up with reality. That, that's not how the world works. They are then shocked by what's actually in the Bible. There is a psalmist that, that for years um, has given vocabulary to people's prayers. That's what the psalm, the psalms is the church's prayer book, hymnal, and um, uh, uh, the original songbook, and it gives us vocabulary for every human emotion we're going through. It gives us a way to express it to God. And when you feel like there's no justice, and it feels like these evil people, they keep prospering, there's actually a psalm that was written, because I, I, I point this out, because usually we think of prayer as like these holy, righteous words we speak to God, when in fact the Bible thinks of prayer as the honest words to God. He can handle it. Just tell him honestly. And here you have in the Bible these people pouring out their heart before their Heavenly Father. David does it all the time. Here's one, Asaph in Psalm 73. I just put up a little sampling for you. This is a prayer to God. Now let me ask you, does this sound anything like your prayers? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. The ESV translates that. Their bodies are fat and sleek. (laughs) That was a compliment back then. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. And then he goes on to list all their deeds of wickedness. And trust me, you can go back and read it. They are absolutely wicked. And if the worst part is, verse 11, they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Woo! Blasphemous. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. So what do they get for their blasphemy? They get what you want, a carefree life. You're telling me these wicked people blaspheme God nothing, and they get richer. What about me? I do the righteous thing. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of prayer is this? Some of you have little kids. You're teaching them to pray. Wouldn't you be shocked if you walked by their bedroom one night? Every day more affliction. 
Strike down the wicked maybe once for a change. And thank you for my toys. Amen. Like, what on? My point is, uh, when you say it seems like there's no justice, the Bible beats you to it. The Bible says that's right. Under the sun, you're absolutely right. Seems like there's no justice. And if there is justice, it takes forever for it to come. If there finally is going to be a comeuppance, who can wait that long? Have you ever heard the, uh, the, the old adage, justice delayed is justice denied? I think Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. made that famous in his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. That's true. If you say, we're going to give you justice, but you'll get it in 50 years. Well, you might as well have just denied the person justice. And that's, we see that. Look at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. Now, what's he talking about here? Here, he is counteracting the theology of the eight-year-old boys that I grew up with when I was an eight-year-old boy, my friends at church. We had a theology at about age seven, eight, nine years old called lightning bolt theology. Now, we didn't find this in the Bible. We sort of made this up. But this is what we figured how it must go down. If you, we, a little country church, we had a little basketball goal out in the parking lot. We would play basketball. And at church, y'all, in the, this is a church parking lot, so holy basketball. And somebody would say, uh, they would say a, you know, say, they would say a curse word. <clears throat> no names. I'm not a rat. We would immediately, when somebody did that, because it was on church property, we would immediately back away. Why? Why? Because we were certain at any moment, pow, lightning bolt. And we didn't want to be anywhere near that guy, right? The minute you do it, lightning bolt, lightning bolt theology. It turns out, the Bible says, there's not lightning bolt theology. In fact, an evil de- uh, the, 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 the judgment against an evil deed, the sentence is not executed speedily. So what do we do with that? Once we find out there's no lightning bolt, what do we do? What do we, what do we do? What are we supposed to do as humans? We're supposed to go, oh, of course. The reason there's no lightning bolt is because if he did that right after we'd sin, there would be no time for growth and sanctification and forgiveness and repentance and further glorifying God and realizing we live by grace. So I bet the reason there's not a lightning bolt is so that we can repent. And so because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man get better at repenting. Eh. Guess again. <laughs> no. The heart of the children of man is like, Set evil to max. (laughs) Why? Because there's no lightning bolt. Nothing's going to happen. So we might as well, hey, we can get away with it. It's a scary thing, by the way, when a child first realizes that every now and then they can tell a lie and get away with it. There's no immediate consequence for sin sometimes. Keyword immediate. That's scary stuff. Because it's not executed quickly. In fact, I... I think this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I can't prove this, but my hunch is God told Adam, the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, the day you eat of it, you'll die. But then this serpent comes up and says, you will not surely die. So which is it? Adam heard God say, the day you eat of it, you'll die. But now Adam and Eve are together, and the serpent comes up, and the, 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 God said, the day you eat of it, you'll die. And he thinks, But this talking snake says that you will surely not die. 
which is it? Or like, does God mean something different? Did I misunderstand? Either way, it's too much of a risk. I mean, I can't, I can't risk eating the fruit only to find out, yep, God was right, and I immediately dropped dead. So will a human die if he eats the fruit? Or will he surely not die? Adam thinks, if only there was some human guinea pig I could test this out on to see whether or not. And that's when Adam looked at Eve and said, ladies first, right? Eve gets blamed for the fall of man uh, unfairly. You see what Adam did was worse, right? I believe that it goes back to the garden. Had God struck them dead right then, there would have been no well, there would have been no plan of salvation. Like, God delays judgment to give time for repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so if you say, hey, I can sin and get away with it, God must be indifferent. He must not really care about sin that much. No, or he's limited in his power. He can only enforce certain commands. No, or, well, this probably applies to everybody else, but not me. I'm, I'm like his favorite. I'm, the rules apply to everybody else, but not me. no. <laughs> The fact of the matter is, he's trying to give time for repentance. In fact, it's his mercy that's the cause of delay. And if you don't feel pain for sin, that's not always a good thing either. In his excellent book, Tempted and Tried, Russell Moore, who wrote, I think, the best book on temptation, uh, Tempted and Tried by Russell Moore. Check it out. He writes in there something that stopped me in my tracks. He said, the next time you think about this, you do a sin and you don't feel any pain from the consequences of your sin, at least not immediate, at least not that you can see. He said, because there's something spiritually happening, right? The law of the harvest goes into effect, but you can't feel it. He said, don't think that it's always God that's shielding you from that pain. It may be Satan who's shielding you from feeling the pain of your sin. Because if you felt the pain for your sin, you might wake up and repent and turn. And he doesn't want that. He wants to keep you in sin. So he'll numb the pain, see? And he'll anesthetize you in such a way. Why? Because he's grooming you for food. I had to put the book down. I was like, I am sorry for everything. When I was eight and on the basketball court, and I, you, you understand? I better put the sandwich back. <laughs> you, know, you with me? Uh, it could be Satan who's, that, that is, uh, wow. Pain is not only God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world, but also to rouse a sinful world, to call them back to repentance. So this is so important that Ecclesiastes says, all right, I'm going to come from behind the veil. You know, he's been adopting this mode of a professor, uh, but here he uses a slightly different verb that lets us know. He's like, all right, real talk. Uh, you ever had a, a teacher do that? I had that. Like a professor would do that. In, in seminary, they would do this all the time. They would be like, uh, one school of thought is this, and they'd go on about this. Another school of thought is this, and they would go on and on. And then you'd get all these schools of thought. And finally, at the end of the lecture, somebody would be like, hey, if you don't mind, can you like just tell us what you think? All right, y'all, here's what I think. And he'd be like, thank you, you know? Ecclesiastes, and he's going to do this more in the later chapters, but finally he does this. He says, look, I know y'all look under the sun and you go, there's, it's, there, nobody gets their comeuppance. There's injustice. He says, let me, let me come out. Because, uh, 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 tw verse 12, Though a sinner, real talk, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. So you're sitting there going, how many times? Okay, it could be a hundred. And prolongs his life. Yet I know. This is new language for Solomon. So far he said, I have observed. I have seen. Have you ever noticed? I witnessed. Now it's, I know. 
That lets me know he's coming from behind the veil. I know, listen, you can bank on this. It will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Got it? He's saying, I know what you see under the sun, and I'm saying there is absolute justice. Yes, absolutely. It will go well with the one who fears God. It will not go well with the wicked, period. You can bank on it. What he is here confirming is something that runs through all of Scripture known as the law of the harvest. Do you know the law of the harvest? The law of the harvest is this. A man reaps what he sows. It will happen. It will go well for those who fear God. And it will not go well because a man reaps what he sows. The law of the harvest has three components to the law of the harvest. One, uh, what you sow doesn't happen immediately. It takes time for crops to germinate and grow. So the consequences come much later than we think. Secondly, they come in a totally different form than we think. I'll explain that in just a second. And they come in spades. They come up a hundredfold, much, much more than what we planted. That's the law of the harvest. Here's why this is so important. In the Bible, when they talk about the law of the harvest, and it comes up a lot, many of Jesus' own parables are about agriculture. Everybody around lives in an agrarian society in Jesus' day. They didn't have a bunch of technology, and so everybody would have got those things. We don't live by the law of the harvest. We live by the opening an app on my smartphone. And let me explain why this is really important. Opening an app on a smartphone is the exact opposite of the law of the harvest. Watch. When I tap on an app on my phone, I expect immediately that app to open. I don't want to tap and then wait for the fall where I will reap a crop of the app opening. No, no, no. If, it, if, if I tap on my phone and I have to then go make a pot of coffee and come back and still wait for it to open, I just go get a new phone. This doesn't work for me, right? It needs to be immediate. Well, all the harvest is it takes a long time. Second, I expect that app to open that app. In other words, if I tap on my email, I want email. If I tap on text, I don't want Angry Birds to pop up. And if I tap on Angry Birds, I don't want Candy Crush. And if I tap on Candy Crush, it occurs to me I, I need fewer hobbies. Everybody understand? I want it to be that thing. And third, when I tap on one app, I don't want 100 apps to open up. If I do that, obviously something's wrong with the phone and it's broken. Everybody got it? That's the world we live in. That's not how sin works. That's not how anything works in the, in, in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm, you plant an action, and it may be months or even years before you see the fruit of that. It also comes up in a different form. Think about it. You would never, if you uh, could find somebody who didn't know anything about botany, and you showed them an acorn, you say, what that, what's that going to turn into? There's nobody that would predict, oh, that's going to be an oak tree. You couldn't predict that, and that's how it is in the spiritual realm. I just planted an action. I didn't expect to reap a habit. I just planted a habit. I didn't expect to reap a character. I, I just planted a character. I didn't expect to reap an addiction. I just planted this addiction. I didn't expect to reap a destiny. That's right. That's right. Always comes up in a different form. You can't predict it. And it always comes up much more. No farmer plants a kernel of corn in the ground, cover it up, water it, wait for the harvest, and at harvest time, my kernel, I got my corn back. Tis a bountiful harvest indeed. No, you expect that that kernel is going to yield hundredfold, right? Ears and stalks. So it is in the spiritual realm. When you plant an action, it's going to come up in spades. It's going to come up multiplied. Now, that should, um, 
That, that's what he's saying. It w- there will be comeuppance. It will not go well for the wicked, and it will go right for those who fear God. That's scary stuff, so let me give you a little encouragement. Let me give you a little hope. The law of the harvest also works for good spiritual things. So why not plant some of those? You plant some of that, some of that stuff you're praying for right now. I don't even think some of you have considered it. It may take years. It may take months. It may take years. I don't know. And it's going to come up different than what you prayed for. But do you know, have you ever considered, some of you right now are walking under a season of blessing and you've never connected the dots that it's because God is answering a prayer you prayed six months ago. You are right now walking under a season of favor because of something you prayed a year ago or two years ago. God's about to answer it next Thursday. And you go, well, where did this come from? What? Law of the harvest. You reap a an act of faith, a step of obedience. And what happens? It may take a long time, but it will go well for the man or the woman who fears God. It just may take time. And it may not come, and the answer may not come in the way you thought it was going to come. But Solomon is saying, this is the truth. There is a law of the harvest. All right, so what do you do with all this? He says, I commend well, despair? No, I commend joy. Look at verse 15. And I commend joy. Man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And he says, look, it's, you're not going to get the joy when you get an answer. We may not know what God is up to. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, verse 16, to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil, in other words, if you work really hard, you will not find it out. Or if you're really, really, really smart, doesn't matter. We're all pea brains compared to God. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So does God care? Is there justice? Are we loved? Are we hated? And if so, how do we know? Chapter 9, verse 1 says, but, as I, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, Man does not know. Both are before him. What's he saying? Remember, remember, remember. The book of Ecclesiastes is meant to drive you to the big questions. And this may be one of the biggest of all. If I look around at my circumstances, I do good, and sometimes I get good, but sometimes I get bad. And I do bad, and sometimes good things happen, and sometimes bad things happen. Surely in vain, we say with the psalmist in Psalm 73. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Does it matter? I mean, we look around. How do we know whether God loves us or hates us? How do we know how he's disposed toward us? If we look at nature, we see that God is a beautiful artist. He is a, a master craftsman. But that does, we don't know how he's disposed toward us. We don't know if he loves us or he hates us. And so we end up doing what most people do under the sun. Now, as Christians, we know this because Ecclesiastes is getting you to raise the question. And of course, we know the end of the story. We know the answer. But at a heart level, I'm telling you, most of us boil down our theology to this. How do I know if God's pleased with me? I just look around at my circumstances over the last 48 to 72 hours. And that's how I base how God thinks of me. I heard some preachers say, we base our justification on our sanctification. I thought it was pretty clever. What he means is, um, we base our assurance of salvation on how well behaved we've been over the last like two or three days. Dangerous stuff. So we look around and we go, well, I'm, I'm, I, things are pretty good right now. I guess God loves me. Or things are falling apart right now. I guess God hates me. 
And that's at a heart level. That's how we operate. My, my kids seem healthy. I guess God, you know, God is good. I, I, my, my kids seem really messed up right now, and, they, and, I, and I'm under all this stress. I, I, guess, I guess things aren't good with God. What is it? Is it love or hate? Listen, if you want to know what God thinks of you, if you want to know how God is disposed toward you, if you want to know what the almighty creator, the maker of the heavens and earth, if you want to know how he feels about you, what does he think when he looks at you? What is his heart towards you? If you want to know what God thinks of you, you cannot look to your circumstances, but there is a place you can look. If you want to know what God thinks of you, don't look to your circumstances. Look to the cross. Because there, at the cross of Calvary, the most incredible thing happened. Ecclesiastes 8.14 was literally laid out on the cross. On the cross of Jesus Christ, there was double imputation. Two things happened. Look. The righteous people happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the cross of Jesus Christ, the righteous person, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, he was hung up on a Roman cross, and what happened to him? They treated him as if he were the wicked one. They beat him, and they whipped him, and they drove nails in his hands, they put a crown of thorns, and meanwhile, the wicked people happened, they got the rewards of the righteous one. Who are the wicked people? See, have you noticed this whole sermon has a blind spot I intentionally built in? And if, if, if you didn't notice, okay, because I set you up, sorry. But the whole sermon has been built around where you stand in the sermon. Every sermon has a conceptual audience. This will help you in your Bible reading, by the way. Always ask yourself, where have I been standing? Many times we stand in the best seats in the house. So we stand with Jesus denouncing the Pharisees. Hmm? We stand with the faithful. We stand with Stephen, the martyr. We never stand with Paul, the one who threw the stone, do we? At least I don't. We always pick the best spots to stand. Where have we been standing in this sermon? If you're like me, the sermon has been a cry for justice. God, let these wicked people get their comeuppance, whether it's a cruel dictator or a sandwich thief. Will you not judge them? In vain I've kept my hands pure. Why am I living such a righteous life? You have got to judge the wicked. God, pour out justice on the wicked. And in his mercy, he didn't answer that prayer. Because I know the truth. A fearless moral inventory of my life. Though I would like to believe I'm always among the righteous, that ain't the truth. And a fearless moral inventory of my life would reveal that more times than I care to admit, I'm standing with the wicked. And if I cry out, oh God, when will you give justice on the wicked? I'm asking for the wrath of God to fall on me and be crushed under the justice of God. But God, in his great mercy, in his great love for sinners, watch this, he sent the righteous one, Jesus, to die for the wicked one, Tom Richter. And you could say that about yourself. And if you said, oh, Tom, you're being too hard on yourself, I would say, you don't know me. And if you said, oh, I'm being too hard on myself, I'd say, can we not just be real for one second? Have you not done deeds that, there's no other way to say it. They were selfish. They were wrong. We have a certain bending, a certain bending inward away from God in rebellion to God. That's wickedness. There's no other way to say it. So watch this. 
on the cross, it was a two-way transaction, a double imputation, as I said. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Ecclesiastes 8.14 was played out. The righteous one got the punishment that the wicked one deserved. Oh, and bless God, me. Even me, a wicked one, was given according to the deeds of the righteous one. So God is going to welcome me into his home. He's going to give me heaven. He's going to give me all this that was won for me by my champion, by my hero, by my savior, by my Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. He'll do it for all who receive him by faith. It's grace. Our whole story is a story of grace, triumph, mercy, triumphing over judgment. Does that touch your heart? That, 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 that's it. That Ecclesiastes 14, and then, I mean 8.14, and then we can say, musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of invitation. Brandon will come. The, 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 uh, then we can say with the psalmist. I mean, that's Psalm 73. I kind of left you on a cliffhanger there. But that Psalm 73 ends in a spectacular fireworks of, he realizes, he says, the wicked do good and I'm struggling. But then at the end of that psalm, look what he says. When I became embittered, because that's why you feel this way. You're bitter, verse 21 of Psalm 73. My innermost being was wounded. The reason you're bitter, you were wounded. He says, I was stupid and I didn't understand. I was like an unthinking animal towards you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. And even if I said, none of this makes sense and there's no justice, well, who else am I gonna go to? Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish, law of the harvest. You, they, you destroy all who are unfaithful to you, yeah, law of the harvest. But as for me, oh, listen to this, precious. God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. I'm not looking to my circumstances to find the justice of God. I'm looking to that cross. And there I see perfect justice and perfect mercy for all who believe. And that free me up this week to go a little easier on other people, right? Show a little more mercy, show a little more grace when I consider what God has done for me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love that 3,000 years ago, this book of Ecclesiastes you touched the writer's heart, God, to give us a little clue, a little pointer that pointed us straight to Calvary's cross. And God, we want to say thank you for the cross. Thank you for your mercy that triumphed over judgment. And God, I ask that if anyone here today has not yet know you, they're not saved, that today would be that day where they receive you as Lord and Savior, that they would experience this, this two-way transfer. And God, I pray for believers that we would, at a heart level, no longer operate on some silly system of, 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 of Christian uh, karma or something, but that we would lean deeply into your perfect justice and your perfect mercy, and that it would give us gospel witness all day, every day this week, that we might show mercy to others and we might be gracious. And we would work for justice where we can and await that day when there will be perfect justice. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.